0: Jane is leaving. And that can cause grief and sadness and maybe even anger for some of us, right? Like there's just a lot of emotions that go when people leave. I will tell you as we dig into the passage today... Um, It's going to seem a lot like to most of you that this was like the week that we had planned out. This will be the passage. This will be the week when we let everyone know it isn't. (laughs) God in his sovereignty planned it to be this week. Um, We were going to do it a few weeks ago, but snow and ice and everything else. So, um, yeah, this is divinely planned to just go with this chapter. Because as we look at Acts chapter 21... And even the start, as Matt pointed out, in the end of 20, we see Paul's farewell journey. And we see gospel goodbyes. We know that it can be hard to say goodbye. But we are a church that was built on gospel goodbyes. And as we send him off, as we send Shane off to the next stage in God's plan for his life, we need to be excited, but we can also have those other emotions as well too. And so being in Acts 21 is where we'll be today. So head on over there and and we'll dig into our passage and just look at Paul's gospel goodbyes and what we can learn by Paul's journey here in Acts 21. The first section I'll be reading today shows goodbyes in spite of friendships. So starting at verse 1, it says, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. of friendships like i said we can see the the farewell journey and it actually started back in Acts 20 and it's hard for them to say goodbye they all have fears and assumptions of what may happen to paul on this journey but more importantly than their fears and their assumptions dif- gospel goodbyes are difficult because of relationships because of friendships But then here in Tyre, the fears do get worse. And that starts to come up a little bit more than just the friendships. It says that through the Spirit, the disciples were telling Paul not to go. It seems like the Spirit is revealing something to the the friends in Tyre. And they're saying, no, Paul, don't go. This does bring up a question for us. As we continue to watch Paul leave, is he actually going against the leading of the Spirit? I was studying this past week, some theologians would actually say, yes, that Paul should not have gone to Jerusalem. And we can see that because all the turmoil that's going to come out of his life in the next few years. But most theologians, and I as well, say no. Paul is not going against any sort of prophetic announcement that he should go. It's just that the people entire were simply receiving information and knowledge of what may go on when they get to Jerusalem. And they didn't want to see their friend go into that. Theologian and author Jay Vernon McGee says that the Spirit is revealing that Paul should not go to Jerusalem unless he is prepared to make the required sacrifice. You know, anyone that knows the life of Paul knows that there will be sacrifice of his life and everything else coming up. But, but even before that, the sacrifice that Paul needs to be willing to make is leaving people that he cares deeply about. It is always hard to leave friends. And as we think about Shane and Sam and the idea of them leaving, we could easily say things like, but you have friends here. You have a job here. You live close to some of your family. You shouldn't leave. But what about my son in your youth group and X, Y, Z? None of those things are what the gospel is about. The son and youth group, maybe a little bit, but the family and the jobs and the friends. The gospel of Jesus propels us to go to those who have not heard. Sometimes that means staying. Sometimes that means going. At the beginning, I said that we are a church built on gospel goodbyes. We're going to say that, though. We have to ask, what is a gospel goodbye? We've heard Troy say that. If you've been at Cornerstone, you've heard that. But what actually is a gospel goodbye? Gospel goodbyes are saying goodbye to someone, knowing that they are following the leading of the Spirit, that they are leaving in order to help spread the gospel further and further. I actually texted Troy and I said, Troy, I need your definition for gospel goodbyes. And he says, it's when someone you love and want to keep leaves because of the greater call to advance the gospel. And this is spoken from a man who just let his best friend of 20 years go. You want to talk about letting go of friends? Talk to Troy goodbyes weren't meant to be easy. It's right and good that we grieve, but we should honor God as we grieve in our goodbyes. The longer that someone stays in one place, the harder it is to say goodbye. I have personally had to say goodbye to the man that mentored me for the first four years of my Christian life. Without him, I, I didn't think I could read the Bible. I didn't think I could pray. I didn't, I didn't think I could just do this. I didn't know what I was doing. He helped me do everything in those first four years. When he left, I had one of two options. I could have walked away and just said, yeah, I, I can't read my Bible. I can't serve the church without Daniel by my side. I, I can't pray. I can't leave. I I just can't do this church thing without Daniel by my side. I could have done that. Or I could have done exactly what I did. Cried tears of joy knowing that there are men and women in the Chicago area that are going to be blessed by the training of that amazing man. And I could take what he taught me and pass it on to the next generation. The same is true for us here today. We can cry tears of joy knowing that there are people that are going to be blessed with the worship and the love of their children and the relationships and know that God has a better plan for all of this. The very fact that Shane can be gone last week shows us that he has created a worship culture built on more than just him. Praise God. That is our prayer in all areas of Stonebridge. I cannot stand here and tell you that others will not leave someday. In fact, I can promise you that others will leave someday. We are a church built on gospel goodbyes. Whether it is a a child growing up, going to college, and going off to one of the church plants. Or a connection group leader. Or just a dear friend moving away for another job. Or Matt or I. God calls men and women out of churches every year in order to spread his gospel throughout this country and across the world. But we want to be a church that says goodbyes well. And as we look at this next section, we can see more goodbyes for Paul. Starting at verse 7. It says, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we... We arrived at Palatnius, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. For he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands and says, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple, with with whom we should lodge. So now we see a goodbye in spite of prophecy. It's not just revealing, now it's a prophecy. And the men stay with Philip, who was one of the original deacons. We can remember that from Acts chapter 6. And he also served as an evangelist. We saw that in Acts chapter 8. But it's now been 20 years since those stories in 6 and 8. And he has come to Caesarea, made it his headquarters, and raised up four godly daughters. Now, the interesting thing to kind of just think through when we read this is when you think about that Acts 6, 8, 9, that's the stoning of Stephen. And Stephen and Philip were co-laborers as deacons in the, in the Jerusalem church. So it's very possible that Philip watched the stoning of Stephen who which Paul was part of, the stoning. He was holding the jackets while Stephen was stoned to death. So this is probably a really interesting meeting because it's very possible that Paul and Philip have not seen each other since the stoning of Stephen's buddy or Philip's buddy. So that's just an interesting kind of like. Oh, I wonder how that meeting went up when you first meet this guy again. I'm sure Philip has heard the stories of Paul getting saved and the missionary trips, but still, just I can't imagine not seeing a guy for 20 years. And the last time I saw him, he stoned my best friend to death. But hey, welcome in. Have a seat with my daughter. You know, like a yeah. Then we see the prophecy from Agabus, and again we have to ask. Was Paul resisting the Spirit? The people's concerns are valid. What has previously happened in Jerusalem? It's not actually a a hotbed of church planting activity and really awesome for Christianity. Let's just think, uh, Jesus was crucified there. Stephen was stoned to death and James was beheaded. Those are just a few of the things that have happened in Jerusalem. So the idea of Paul going back to that area is scary for these people. But the prophecies here should be taken as a warning. Like, get ready. They're not a prohibition saying you must not go. There are times in the Bible when God clearly tells people that they are not to do something. Paul has experienced this already on his journeys. He desired to go to a place called Bithynia, but God didn't allow him to. And so he understands the leading of the Spirit and when God is closing doors. Agabus does not forbid God. Paul to go to Jerusalem, he only told him what to expect if he was going to go. Whenever we have to say goodbye to someone, we need to make sure that we're not resisting the Spirit. How can we tell if we're resisting the Spirit? Well, I think our hearts are the the first place we need to check. Are we saying, no, you shouldn't go because we don't want to say goodbye or, or, no, we don't want to go just because we don't want to say goodbye. Or are we saying no to different opportunities because God has closed doors? I think of the story of Jonah. Jonah is a perfect example of someone who resisted the Spirit of God. The audible voice of God spoke to Jonah and told him to go preach to a people that he despised the most. I think about Matt. I'm like, what would that look like for Matt to have to go preach to people he despised most? Like Matt, go to Iowa City. Be a Hawkeye salt director. Yay, black and gold. Would you resist that spirit, Matt? <laughs> Maybe I should start praying for that, right? No, no. yeah. <laughs> so Jonah gets his prophecy to go to a people he despises and he runs the opposite direction. Even after God sends storms and big fish to swallow him up, to bring him to repentance. And he finally willingly goes into this city full of people that he despises. And he preaches one sermon, possibly one one line, and the entire town gets saved. And what does Jonah do? He throws a temper tantrum, goes up and camps out on the hill and saying, God, rain down your fire on these people. They're not worthy of your, your justice and your mercy, mercy. That is resisting the spirit. Is that our thoughts when we hear people are leaving? Are we like, no, they can't go because of whatever reason we come up with. Or, or no, I, I can't go because of all of this stuff. Like, I, Is that our feelings? Are we just sad knowing that things are going to change? They're going to, but excited to hear how God will use them next. Now, this story in Acts 21 is different because they aren't just sending Paul off to plant another church or to encourage believers. Like this isn't that exciting of a send off. Actually, they're sending him off to be arrested and possibly die But as we look at Paul's words here, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm not only, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Philippians 1, 21 through 24, Paul says it again in those, in that chapter. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, that means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. To live is Christ. This has always been Paul's mentality. He truly understands this message of you will be my witness. He realizes that every day he has on earth is one more day he can spread the gospel. One more day he can preach about the forgiveness of Jesus. One more day that he can tell about the glorious news that they can be free from bondage and sin. One more day that he can share the hope of the future glory of heaven. Live as Christ one more day. And if he dies tomorrow he'll be welcomed into the loving arms of Jesus. He will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. To live as Christ, to die as gain. That has always been Paul. Last week, Matt reminded us that it's not about us. This whole thing we're doing here Stonebridge Church, We Heart Boone, Bless Campaigns, Forged Youth Group, D Six. None of it is about you and me. It's all about Jesus. Paul knows that. He knows that it's not about him. He knows that it's about Jesus and doing everything in his power to make sure that people hear the gospel. So Paul leaves, even with this prophecy of bad stuff to come down the road. He leaves. And in our next section, we can see his arrival. The first, we see the arrival to the Jerusalem church. And then later, we're going to see his arrival to the Jewish people. So first up, verses 17 through 26, we see his arrival to the Jerusalem church. It says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself among them, along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the laws. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter from our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So here we see his arrival. And at first... We, we would assume that these people would be excited to hear that this church-planting beast is amongst them, right? Like, he is the church-planting, the best missionary I could think of. Like, he is with them. And then the fact that he's bringing with them an offering to help the poor in the church, this is, should be exciting. And they are at first, and they rejoice in verse 20, as Paul gives his missionary report of all the Gentiles being saved. But then the conversation quickly turns. And he actually arrives to questioning from the Jerusalem church. The leaders of the church are worried because they know that a lot of people in and out of the church are questioning Paul's methods. The rumors of Paul disregarding the law of Moses have traveled faster than anyone could expect. Now these are clearly lies as we've seen over and over again Paul's respect and observance of the Jewish traditions. So the leaders in the church, they devise a plan that they will take the Jewish vow, that that Paul should take the Jewish vow and even pay for four other young men to be a part of it. And with this, we have to ask, what what exactly is this vow? So the leaders suggest that Paul demonstrates uh, publicly his reverence for the Jewish law. And all they asked was that he identify with these four men who were under a Nazarite vow. And we don't have time to dig into what exactly a Nazarite vow is. But it's basically a vow of just just pouring themselves into God and just saying, I'm God's for a time period. I'm purified. God used me in a certain way. If you want to dig into deeper exactly what all it is, you can find it in number six. Um, so identify yourself with these men pay for their sacrifices and be with them in the temple for their time of purification. That's what they come up with for the plan to kind of make it look like Paul's okay with the Jewish people. Warren Wearsby says that Paul agrees to do this, but it's only because it's not a matter involving someone's personal salvation. You can be sure that Paul would have never cooperated for that. If it had been uh, something involving somebody's personal salvation, He he would not have cooperated with that for that would have compromised his message of salvation by grace through faith. This was a matter of personal conviction on the part of Jewish believers. They were given the freedom to accept or reject these customs. This vow is not unbiblical. It's just not necessary. So then we have to say if it's not necessary, why is Paul willing to do this? Well again, let's Look at some of Paul's other writings to see like what his heart is and why he's willing to do things like this, unnecessary rituals. 1 Corinthians 9 through 20, Paul says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. For the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every means possible save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel. Paul is willing to compromise on non-essential aspects of the faith in order that some may be saved. He's willing to lay aside his freedoms for the weaker brothers that are in Jerusalem. Paul's number one concern is witnessing and sharing his faith. With this idea, we need to remember this I heard a pastor talking about this with this passage and he said it's possible to win and still be a loser. We can win an argument and lose influence. Paul definitely could have argued that the vows were not necessary, that he's done nothing wrong. He could have even brought in, you know, proof that what he had done was there was nothing wrong. You know, he had brought in Timothy. Look, I even circumcised Timothy. I've done nothing wrong. But in the end, he would have lost influence with the leaders of the church because they're asking him to do this. If he would have argued with them, he could have won the argument, but he would have lost his influence. I think about this idea of winning and still being a loser with parenting, right? Some of you have gotten the opportunity to talk to Deacon about superheroes. If you haven't, carve off about an hour of your life if you want to. Um, it is something that he's pretty passionate about, and he's very knowledgeable about. And me and him, we will talk about characters and storylines for hours if I let him. And he usually knows a lot more than me. But when the random opportunity comes up that I know he's wrong, I love to correct him, put him in his place. You know, you're wrong, and this is why. And I'll even find proof for it. And we will get into heated debates about the origin of Batman or which came first, Green Goblin or Hobgoblin. Really important facts, things that are worth arguing and fighting over. In the end. Usually, we both walk away angry i 'm probably crying. we don 't speak for an hour or so it 's really helpful argument in that moment i 've won probably because i 've proven my point, but i 've lost a little bit of influence in my child 's life over something so unimportant and if i if i If I teach him that i 'm willing to argue over something so insignificant like Make-believe make believe superheroes. Is he going to be willing to come to me and discuss more important things? The church can learn a lot by Paul's example here. We need to remain firm on Christian essentials. Things like Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. God created everything, and there is no hope for us. We are totally depraved, and we are separated from God, and our only hope, our only way to freedom and redemption is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Those are the essentials of our faith. We need to remain firm on those. But we can be flexible on non-essentials. I just spent nine hours yesterday in class pretty much arguing about some of the non-essential aspects of our faith. Things that just really don't even come up on a day-to-day. And even some more things that do come up but are still a little non-essential. Things like creation and end times. Guess what? I wasn't at creation and I am not, I don't know what's going to happen in the end. so I cannot make firm statements on either one. I have ideas, but I'm not going to hold firm to them and argue over them. Sometimes we need to exercise the gift of mutual submission for the sake of the gospel. Even if we feel that we are right in our methods, we need to make sure that we're not losing influence to speak truth. And in our final section today, we can see more opposition for Paul. But that is just the standard for Paul's life, right? Since becoming a believer. Opposition, tears, trials. Starting at verse 27, we're going to end at 36 for today. 27, it says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Tromiphaeus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then the tribune came up and arrested him, ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. for the mob of the people followed, crying, Away with him! So here in these verses, we see Paul's arrival to tears and trials. In this section, we see that Paul has done everything that was asked of him. Everything. And yet the Jews still falsely accuse him. They continue to say that he is teaching people to disregard the law of Moses. And in verses 28 and 29, we see this just ridiculous accusation that Paul brought a Greek into the temple. Now that is wrong. That was unlawful for the jews but the asinine part of the accusation is that it's completely based on assumptions like they had seen paul in the city earlier with this greek guy Trometheus, and they just assumed that they had that he had brought him into the temple but no one actually saw this guy in the temple with paul that would be like me driving through town and seeing one of your guys' cars parked near a bar and calling you up and being like clearly you're drunk in there what are you doing it can't be that you just went to go get pizza at Adobe, right? Like you, that's just ridiculous. No one would ever say that, or at least they better not. So then the riot breaks out. Paul starts getting beaten, and luckily the Romans in charge hear what is going on. They come, break it up, grab Paul, cuff him, and haul him off to the barracks. And what this shows us is that we as a church, as we prepare for our gospel goodbye, we need to remember that church planting is tough. We are part of the salt network. Stonebridge Church is a plant from Cornerstone Church of Ames. Sometimes it's hard to remember that Cornerstone was a church plant itself, we drive past on Highway 30 and see that beautiful building, we hear stories of 29 baptisms last weekend. When we hear stories of 1,500 freshmen showing up their kickoff, not 1,500 students, 1,500 freshmen. That is incredible. When we think about the fact that Cornerstone is about to plant its 14th church, that's incredible. And again, I texted Troy just to make sure I got the number right cornerstone church is only 25 years old that is absolutely a work of god all of those numbers it's incredible but for every story like cornerstone church there are hundreds hundred stories of church planters struggling stories of church planters questioning if they made the right decision stories of church planters having to get a second job because the church just isn't growing and they're not able to meet budget, not able to pay the bills. I have friends in that group of church planters who are struggling. And this final section for today reminds us that even if we do everything well, even if we send out Shane well, and even if Doxa does everything well, it does not guarantee that everything will go well. Our network of churches does not seek out easy places to plant churches. I've talked with Shane about Wisconsin and the area that is in. It's tough soil. Doxa is one of only few churches in that area that is boldly preaching the gospel. I sat with one of the other church planters yesterday at lunch. And he said, yeah, we're going to Indiana. Every single church in that area has rainbow flags hanging from it. We are going to be the only one that doesn't have the rainbow flag hanging from our church. Doxa Church is, going to an er- or is in an area that is fairly liberal. Doxa Church is not watering down the message because it may offend people. They are attempting to reach the next generation for the gospel. And as I think about most of the church plants the Salt Network has sent out, there is a level of difficulty in all of them. Most of these church plants will not grow to 3,000 member churches in 25 years. This is not going to happen for a lot of them. But none of us are going to say that they didn't do everything that they could. Even if some of those churches don't work out for some reason or another, we are reminded from this text that even if they do everything well, it does not guarantee that everything will go well. Church planting is hard, but church planting is worth it. Even those guys who are struggling would say that. Even those, those guys, even in the salt network, who are struggling with trying to compare themselves to the left or to the right, they say it's worth it. All it takes is one person to get saved. One person to go from life into death. One person to just make their faith their own. To start serving and and taking steps of obedience, getting baptized. One story like that makes everything worth it. It's okay to be sad that Shane is leaving. But we also need to be excited for how God may use him next. We have to be open-handed with everything that God has given us, from finances to people. None of this belongs to Stonebridge. All of it belongs to God, including all of us, including you and me. I pray that we can be a church that can say gospel goodbyes. I pray that all of you would end up being willing to let God call you You know, just be prayerful about where God may be calling you. Church planting is not just about pastors and worship leaders. It's about God's people. Every church plant needs core teams. Pray about that. Is God calling me to go with a plant? We desire for us to say goodbye in a God-honoring, spirit-filled, Christ-commending way. That is not to say that there won't be pain, sorrow, and sadness. There will and should be. But the gospel gives us real hope and joy in the painful act of worship of saying gospel goodbyes. Which means that every gospel goodbye is ultimately good. Let's pray.